Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate. Hello and a very good Sunday morning. I'm Ali Bally. This is Scotland's Talking. On the programme today, we'll be hearing concerns that not enough's been done to tackle the soaring rate of drugs deaths. I've been working in this field for over 25 years and this trend seems to be the worst. That's Dave Barry, who's an addiction worker in Dundee, where 12 people died in January alone. And that's just one city in Scotland. What's your answer to the problem? Also, £14 million has been spent on projects to help victims of crime, with a special focus on the families who are left behind when someone is killed. It's ten years since Bea Jones' daughter Moira was murdered in Glasgow. To start with, we were totally traumatised. We were behaving like robots. You couldn't take it in. And meningitis is back in the news after the tragic death of eight-month-old Coa Brock from Dumfries. Her father's been speaking to Scotland's Talking. The ambulance was coming from Anna and, and they says, how long are you going to be? And they said, 15 minutes. And, you know, it was this baby's not got 15 minutes. And do you stay on late at work just to please the boss? Or so you don't look bad in front of your colleagues? A productivity expert says we're wasting our time. There's this big focus on how hard are we working? Um, and I think that's the wrong thing to ask. It's all on the way on Scotland's Talking this morning. If you'd like to join us, here's the number. 033 2020 401. Scotland's Talking. The podcast. Now, it's an issue that's plaguing our nation, the number of people losing their lives because of drugs. We're hearing about just how bad the problem is in one of our cities, Dundee. After our reporter Hazel Martin discovered this week that despite previous concerns, multiple people are dying from suspected overdoses every month in the city. She joins me on the programme now. Uh, Hazel, good morning. Good morning, Ali. Thank you for having me. Uh, yes, so back in February, uh, this issue was, was thrust into the public eye and that's after 12 people died in Dundee in January alone. But I've since found out that that figure actually hasn't changed and uh, I wanted to find out just how bad it was still and who's affected and I got the chance to speak this week to family members who've lost loved ones through drugs. It's had a... But it's knocked the, knocked the wind all the way, to be fair, yeah trying to get herself back together, if you know what I mean. And as a family, but as a whole, we're struggling. But are. There is a lot of stigma, though, and I think there's a lot of ignorance going about and people need to be educated more on it. And instead of just judging people and whatever, people need help. People shouldn't be too scared to ask people if they're OK, if they're needing help, and I just don't think you're able to anymore. It was really difficult for our family. John was really close to us. We're a close family, and to have lost him when he was only 30 was very difficult. My brother was a brilliant man. He was a footballer, one of the best um, footballers. He um, got offered to play for um, Dundee and United when he was young. He loved football. It was everything to him. And then he kind of just lost his way. The police came to my door on Friday, let me know. And I obviously had to break the news to our daughter. And what nobody happened? wants to do that because the scream that come out of that child was like something, nothing anybody's heard. So Hazel, you've been digging deep. What's happening and why is it happening? Well, for the last while in Dundee, uh, there's been a really big problem with... Uh, something called Street Valium, uh, which has been doing the rounds uh, recently. Um, and it's thought that people are taking that along with a painkiller called pregabalin and then their methadone on top of that. And these three combined is a deadly concoction and it's just causing people to die. They slip away in their sleep. So it's pretty terrifying. And I met up with uh, Dave Barry, who is from Drugs Recovery Charity Adaction in Dundee, and he's really worried about it too. We are hearing and seeing firsthand of people that are dying through overdose um, in Dundee and it, it, it's a national trend but obviously in Dundee where we're working um, this trend continues and it's of great concern. I've been working in this field for over 25 years and this trend seems to be the worst um, that's going on and, and, and we're starting to understand a bit about what's behind it. 
Dave's saying there, Hazel, that this seems to be the worst that he's known uh, in in the city of Dundee. Um, if if he is that way and many others as well, what has been done about it? Well, huge efforts are actually going into addressing this. And uh, uh, last month in March, uh, a drug and alcohol partnership actually launched in the city. And that's bringing together loads of different agencies like the council, NHS Tayside and other organisations. And they're basically saying what's being done before isn't working. It's not. And they're looking to take a different route. They're even, like Glasgow, um, going to be looking at things like safe injecting rooms. Um, I spoke again to the leader of Dundee City Council, John Alexander, he's really keen to drive down the number of deaths that we keep seeing here. I mean, you'd have to be blind not to see the kind of the drugs issues that exist, not only within Dundee, but across, you know, every inner city area in Western Europe, never mind just the UK. Uh, and what we're trying to do is make sure that we come up with solutions that work for Dundee and work for people in Dundee. Now, they could potentially be replicated elsewhere, or they might be very specific and very local, because obviously the setup that we have here in terms of organisations, the voluntary sector and the people involved in tackling the issue might be different. Uh, and it's about pulling all of that expertise together into one focused point, I suppose, to really start to make the change. It's not about uh, budgets, it's not about looking at silos, it's about pulling all the resources together. And it doesn't always need to be about money, it could be about realigning services, it could be about actually having to look at how we deliver things or put in place whether it's a mental health uh, support or, you know, other underlying issues, which obviously uh, and frequently manifest themselves in uh, drug misuse as well. So we're trying to look at the whole picture, but bottom line is it will depend on the individual and individuals uh, are the ones that have fallen into that revolving door of drug misuse for their own reasons and, you know, through their own difficulties. And we've got to be respectful of that, but also understand that when we're trying to come up with solutions. So the Drugs Misuse Commission is now asking for input from organisations working to reduce the impact of drug abuse in the city of Dundee. And also in, in the city, um, Hazel's uh, report there just uh, sort of got towards it and it has been confirmed that uh, uh, a special drug kit which is used to reverse the effect of overdoses uh, is to be made available throughout the city of Dundee. Now, I, I, this has been used in across Scotland. It's called naloxone and it's been used across Scotland uh, for some time now, but only been used by the medical professionals. They were the only ones that were allowed to use them previously. Uh, now they are available through the, the charity uh, AdAction and they will be available for uh, families to have them in their home to use them. This would reverse, uh, should a drug addict take an overdose, uh, this will be used to reverse them. So this naloxone will be uh, available uh, fairly widely. And uh, Hazel asked again, uh, Dave from Adaction, what's, was, it, was he happy about this being available? We're, we're absolutely... Um, ecstatic and, and, and very delighted about. We've been waiting for a while, but it's been quite a challenge for, for the NHS. Um, it, it used to be a prescription drug only. You need to be employed by NHS, so they've worked hard at allowing um, the third sector and the charities to be able to give out naloxone, so we are absolutely delighted. Um, naloxone is a lifesaver. Um, we are planning to be giving out you know, as many kits as we can um, to people who are at risk. Um, a significant number of the people who are um, passing away, a lot of those overdoses could have been avoided if somebody had been there and able to administer naloxone. Dave Barry, and uh, thanks to Hazel for her report there. So these naloxone kits are going to be made available, but surely it depends on who is in situation at the time. Uh, we have um, heard about many deaths throughout Scotland where uh, someone has been found who's already been, uh, who's died, who's passed away. Um, and, and it really, for this naloxone to be used, uh, generally has to be uh, somebody else there with them. So it will depend on somebody being there and depend on somebody being there who knows how to use it. That's another thing. Nobody can just pick it up and say, right, let's, let's have a go at this here. Um, but what is your thoughts? I'll take you back to to that family who were just talking there. And mum said there's a lot of ignorance out there and there's a stigma. And this is very true. 
And it doesn't isn't just the ignorance towards uh, the drug abuser. It is also ignorance towards the families and and how they are affected. I'm going to read a letter out to you. Very small, very small letter. But it was in. We're talking about Dundee here because this is the one. Thirty-eight people suffered drug-related deaths in Dundee last year. Twelve this January. You know, and we're we're hearing of. Um, it's, you know, it's not just those who are dying, it's also those that are affected by the drug dealing. We're hearing of killings in the streets, you know, people getting knifed, people getting shot, for goodness sake. You know, it, do we need to do a bit more than just sit around a table and talk about it again? You know, it's very good for the, the authorities to say, well, what we're doing is not working. I could have told you that 10 years ago. I did on this programme. But politicians don't want to be seen to touch this, really. They don't want their name on it. They don't want to be saying, well, you know, here's what I think we should do because, of course, of votes. But uh, I just want to go back. I digress. I'm getting on a, a, a soapbox here. Um, the family. The mum there said there's a stigma. There's a lot of ignorance. I'll go, I, I just want to read this. See what you think. This is a letter from someone that was published in the evening newspaper in Dundee, the Evening Telegraph. And I say someone because they have a habit of, in this particular publication, of not putting people's names and they get to put print things that, um, well, I'll read it. Instead of spending money on a shooting gallery for drug addicts, why not take the £100,000 spent in Tayside last year on methadone and use this to set up boot camps run by returning soldiers to get them disciplined? specialised treatment, get them that as well, and get what's required to get them into an employment condition. This would free up the police who are involved in constant drug raids and get them on the street to clean up the daily crime. There would also probably be fewer shoplifters needed to feed their habit. So that's a letter, and I just take that next to the mum who said, there's a stigma and there's a lot of ignorance, and that letter to me sums up the ignorance. Stick them all in boot camps. If we've got, if your fam, if your son or your daughter, or your dad or your mum, because you know this this drug thing's been going on a while. So there's you know you're not talking about drug addicts who are twenty and thirty anymore. You're talking about drug addicts who are on methadone and various other things who are forty, fifty, and sixty. You know they've been on it for so long. So stick them all in boot camps is this one's. Uh, idea that it would all work. But what is yours? Has it affected you? Has it affected your family? Treble 3 2020 401. What can we do to stop this across Scotland? It's affecting every village, every town, every city. There's drug dealing going on, there's drug taking going on. What can be done? You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. Talking at the moment regarding drugs, and it's, uh, as I said, a huge concern that a city, and a small city in that in Dundee, has so many people dying because of drugs. But of course, it's just one city, and we know the issue affects the whole of Scotland. So the phone lines are open, as are Twitter, etc. We'll give you all the ways to get in contact in a moment to ask you whether you've been affected by a similar experience or maybe you'd like to comment on any of what you've heard in Hazel's report there and indeed from the family as well. Here's the ways you get in touch. treble three twenty twenty four zero one. You can text 61054. Start your message with Ali, please. Uh, the email address is ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk and we're on Twitter, hashtag Scotland's Talking. Catherine, a very good morning to you. Hello there. Good morning, Catherine. What's your thoughts? Well, I think um, you're focusing too much on blaming the people who are taking the drugs mm-hmm. or, or selling them. I think you have to look at the root cause. What do you think the root cause is, though? Well, society. Mm-hmm. I think that we live in an uncaring society and that people respond to that by being depressed and then they turn to alternative sources of relief from the uncaring society they're living in. 
So I think it's unfair to blame the people who are taking the drugs because they are just trying to deal with their lives. But in this uncaring society, and it's interesting that you mentioned and you used that word because I think it was a couple of weeks ago uh, somebody uh, texted into the programme saying, what is happening with our society? Why are we so uncaring? And it was so, mm-hmm. it was a different subject altogether. But, you know, you do hear, like, you know, that letter that I read out there has no sympathy whatsoever with anybody yeah. who takes drugs. Uh, you hear quite often people saying, well, nobody forced them to take them. Um, But you don't wake up one morning and say to yourself, I'm going to be a heroin addict. It doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't. I think uh, people don't understand that um, most of these people who take drugs, they're coming from a position of pain. And in the same way that an alcoholic turns to alcohol, they turn to drugs to cope with life. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're not bad people, they're stigmatised people and the finger of blame is always pointed at them, which I believe is a government tactic to take the, to take the, you know, the spotlight away from their Mm. actions. You think government should be doing more? Well, they're the ones that have more or less destroyed, you know, the, the, you know, the idea of what a family is or what a nation is or what society is. Uh, Thatcher started it with there's no such thing as society, you know, and that idea has grown. But is it, is, it, is it not easy, Catherine, to to blame someone else? Surely... Of course you know, it's, it's, well, that's right. well, that's why people blame drug addicts. <laughs> they blame them for, the, for taking the drugs and they blame them for everything else just about... Yeah, but if if a drug addict, let's say, who's on methadone and decides they're going out and they go out in the street and they buy some Valium, they have no idea what they're taking. You know, it can be made up of rubbish. It can, but they go out and they buy some uh, valleys, as they're called, and then before they know where they are, it's absolute garbage that's in the Valium and it affects, it affects them on their, their methadone and they could be gone. It's as simple as that. So well, they're, they're taking the risk, aren't they? They, they should but, know not yeah. to do that. Well, it's, it's all very well. It's the same with an alcoholic. You should say to them, you should know not to drink or don't drink too much. But people are not logical beings. They work from emotion. So it's not point in saying you shouldn't do that or that's a bad thing because people don't operate like that. They're, they're trying to survive and cope, so they're not going to think, oh, I shouldn't do that. Obviously, if they took the Valium, they didn't know it was going to lead to them being mm-hmm. killed, you know. That wasn't their intention. Um, they are, they are in fact, addicts, which uh, you're mm-hmm. right. You know, if you're addicted to alcohol, that seems to be almost acceptable in society today, mm-hmm. doesn't it? If you're, addicted, if you're addicted to smoking, that's okay. You know, you can well, smoke that's, away. that's also getting quite hammered as well, actually. <laughs> I spoke, and I've, just this week I've had two lots of, maybe more than that, people tell me to stop. You know, they feel they've got the right to, to judge whether it's right to smoke or not, which is another extension of the government turning everybody into a, a policeman to watch others in society and condemn their actions. And do you want to stop smoking? No. Well, say it, say it then. Don't just, you know, say, <laughs> well, I don't want to stop smoking. I enjoy it. Yeah, but then, you know, but the point is you have to defend yourself. Yeah, why, yeah. Why, why? This is all, it's, it's an extension of the Big Brother Society, which has become paramount now. So there's very little you can do without someone judging you or making a comment or, you know, even down to dog, um, dog, um, excrement, you know, mm-hmm. people are all watching each other now. I've seen battles over that, you know, which in the old, before it before it wasn't made illegal, there was no problem with it as far as I remember. But now it's become part of the social um, framework to watch people and see where the dog is doing the toilet. Which You're quite is, right as well. Oh, the whole thing's become nasty. But people should, but people should be responsible enough. You know, I, I, I have no problem people watching. Dogs and people 
you know, allowing their dogs to fail. We talked about this last week. You know, what is the problem with that? But, well, it's not the, the problem. Isn't the problem with the dogs doing it? It's the problem everybody watching everybody else to see if they're picking up or not. It's become. I mean, if I get my dog, all I'm thinking about is watching its bottom to see if it's going to do a a number two on the ground. You know, mm-hmm. it's not pleasant to have to have that consciousness that you're not out walking your dog, you're out watching if it's going to do the toilet all the time and then you have to pick it up. And it's that whole thing of people all watching and commenting and, you know, I've seen it happen so often. People, you know, someone's dogs and they're never watching to see what would they do. Well, most times pick it up, they do, you know, but once they didn't, the people were horrified, you know, and it's this reaction that people are going about watching and judging each other, which I think has led on to an extension of this drug debate where people feel that they've got the right to condemn others. Okay, Catherine, thank you very much indeed for for your thoughts. Um, I'll turning it round on the government. I, I would turn it round on the government and say, what are you doing? Nothing's being, you know, it seems nothing's being done except talking shops. Let's have another meeting. Let's get them. Oh, that'll take a month, right? So we get another meeting, and we sit around a table, and right, okay, all these professionals, right? So they have their meeting, and that will go on for a few months. But you know, meanwhile, people are dying. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Ali. Well, the, this thing about the thing that dog addicts and get them in the clinics, no, these twenty-five million pound a year, Ali. This, this Scottish government is thrown down the drain. They're not doing the job properly. They just get the money out and they say, right, you just deal with it. But the problem is not getting dealt with properly, Ali. These small clinics that's only got two or three beds, they've got all these workers in there. Steady pulling down the little hospitals and the villages and the little towns. Keep them open and put them in the drug addicts and alcoholics in these places so the professional ones that know all about that can deal with that and maybe get them on their feet again, Ali. But for the government to throw it out and you know, you'll we'll open a clinic in Glasgow, we'll open one in Dundee, but it's not, it's not, it's not a, big, a big hospital. As I said, it's only two or three beds, Alec. Mm-hmm. Keep the old, the old hospitals that was pulling down, keep them open and do the job properly away from the mainstream uh, the hospitals where they can help these addicts, you know, take off. I was in a well-known uh, chemist, in Brit- it's a British name, well-known, and there were three of them there, Alec, and they weren't young people. They were talking in their mid-30s to 40s, waiting for their methadone, and next minute, I'm standing waiting for my prescription at one side, and you're sitting in the chairs. They were discussing, hurry up, get this method on so we can get out and be a bit of thieving to get heroin, a bag of heroin. Ali, that's not right, Ali. No. They actually get method on to keep their heads clear and then they're going out thieving to buy he- heroin bags. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's terrible, Ali. You know what I mean? So the, the, the whole point about it is this government just shuts its door and says, well, you just open the door at the other end and see what you can do. So those, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, to work this through here. You know, they're, st- they're standing in a chemist to get their methadone with, you're saying anyway, discussing going out and how they're going to get money for the next bag of heroin. When, when the methadone is supposed to be um, there to help them. But, you know, yeah. not, not every drug addict, surely, is like the ones that you have witnessed. There must oh, be no, those, no, I, there must not, be those there con- who would actually look for the help that you're talking about in the clinic. Oh, yes, Ali, I'm not condemning, not, I'm not condemning them, but there is, a, there is ones that's just abusing it. We're doing that, Ali. You know what I mean? It can help somebody else, maybe. You know? Mm-hmm. That's the point about it. These, it be, these hospitals, Ali, they only have hospitals for them so they can get the job done properly. That is the main thing. You can't happen at an ordinary hospital and you try to deal with somebody with cancer, you try to deal with somebody with a, a liver, with a drug addict there, and you, you know what I mean? These people have got to be separated and, and dealt with the, the right way so they can get on their feet again, Ali. OK, thank you. Uh, John, good morning. A very good morning, Ali. Uh, I agree with John Alexander, but the thing is, in my community, the area where I am, uh, I've seen many deaths of young people of the ages from 18 upwards, okay? And the fact that, yes, in the methadone situation, the thing is that the amount of people, it used to be a rich man's share bit, okay? We know what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. But a lot to do with mental stress and loneliness. A lot of young people are lonely, in a sense, because they don't understand where they're growing up. And they get, 
what's basically early. They get someone saying, oh, try this, try that, get a high off of this. You understand, Ali? Yeah, yeah. And get a high, is... takes you out the situation. Um, they may be unemployed, but we know there are many who are employed who start on drugs mm-hmm. and then become unemployed, you know, and, and then down that, that route. That's it. The thing is that we've got to come together. We are a big family in Scotland because you've got to look after your own. You can't get a government to look after your own. We are a big family in Scotland. And Dundee, sadly, the scourge of drug dealing and so forth, I don't know how you can stop it, I'll be honest with you, Ali, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to see another young lassie throw her life away and another one throwing himself off a tea bridge. Mm-hmm. You with me in that I, one, no, Ali? I know, I know, I know. But, uh, you know, when you, you think, as I say, 12 people in your city died in January of drug-related deaths, 38 people last year. In my community, 14 have died between New Year and, and April. And that's not recorded, is it, Ali? Well, it'll be recorded. It'll be in the numbers somewhere, but it's, it's you know, once upon a time, John, these figures would have shocked, but now it just seems that we... Are we in that uncaring society that Catherine said we are? It just goes, unless it affects me, you know, I, 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 it's not interesting to me. Well, let's take a look at this, please. Everyone, if you're a parent, and if you think that your child, that's your child... You're responsible to look after that child, regardless of the age, and make sure she or he doesn't go into the drug culture or sell the drugs. OK, Ali? Easier said than done, John. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, keep your calls coming in, 033-2020-401. Scotland's Talkin', the podcast looking at some of the uh, comments coming in on social media. Uh, Here's one that says, uh, substance misuse is a symptom of an underlying cause. We must look to the cause in order to find the solution. This is a health matter, not a criminal one. That's an interesting thought. It's a health matter, not a criminal one. Um, but surely some some of the time that is the problem. It goes from being a health matter and then the addicts, not all of them, but some of them then commit crimes to keep them going and, and get the money for it. So it becomes a criminal one. But I, I see where you're going with that. It should be treated, drug addicts should be treated as a health matter and not a criminal one. Thanks for that. Uh, here's another one that says, Morning about this drug abuse situation uh, that's getting out of hand. I think where the younger concerned, they're taking the so-called legal drugs, thinking they're safe and they need to realise no drug is safe and especially the drugs that can be bought online uh, or indeed on the street. Don't know how this situation can be resolved as it has spiralled out of control. Thanks uh, for that, Liz. Uh, Yep, see where you're coming from and it goes back to what I was saying about buying things like Valium on the streets where nobody knows, particularly those that are just about to swallow them, exactly what's in them and what harm it's going to do them. Uh, Morning, Ali. This one's from G in Edinburgh. It should be, and I would propose from the 1st of May 2018, anyone caught dealing drugs will be sentenced to the death penalty. That's from G in Edinburgh. Thank you. Uh, let's go to John. John, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ali. How are you, my friend? Fine, thank you. Your thoughts? Yes. Um, the drug problem in this country and in every country, um, people are ignoring the answer. People know the answer and they don't want to look at that. All drugs must be legalised. Legalise everything. And the money that you're going to save, because the minute that you legalise the drugs, Ali, you put the dealers out of business. Because the government can then give out the drugs and safely, I might add, no more young people found dead behind doors we're putting them up their arms or anything. That all stops. The money they save, they build clinics. You have a clinic for every town in Scotland, Britain. A clinic. You want drugs, you go to the clinic, we'll give you the drugs. We'll monitor the drugs, we'll give you them. And sit you down and talk to you and say, 
okay, there's the drugs you want. No, no methadone. Methadone's proven to be worse. Heroin, buy it in. We could buy it in very cheaply into the country. Stop saw the house breakings, Alice. Stop saw the muggings. Stop saw the, the, the desperation with people. Because let's remember, when a drug addict commits crime, he's committing it through desperation. He needs his fix. And he will do absolutely anything to get it. Now, nobody, nobody has come up with the answers. They say, oh, we'll put more police on. Putting more police on isn't the answer because there'll just be more dealers. Why will there be more dealers? Because they're earning money. Stop them earning money by legalising it. Now, you think, about, Ali, about the amount of people, people don't really look at the drug situation in the, in the big picture. How many people earn money through drugs as it stands at the present moment? You've got the drug dealers. You've got lawyers. You've got prison officers. All these people, Ali, be it right or be it wrong, earn money because we're in a society where people are desperate for drugs. It's not going to stop. It's not going to go away. The only way to deal with it is take the problem head on, take the money out of it. How do you take the money out of it? You legalise it. You build clinics. You invite the people to come to the clinics. All they're wanting is a fix. And when they're coming to the clinic, Ali... They get their fix, but they're also getting a head to talk to somebody to monitor them. Their names are on. They don't need to break any hussies to get their stuff. Go to the clinic. It's there. Come and get it. Okay, John, I'm going to leave it there so I can get one more call in. Is it as easy as John says? Legalise drugs and that is, John is correct, that's that's the one that um, no politician will touch because they, they don't want to uh, be uh, going to the election the next time round. And, oh, yeah, you were the one who wanted to legalise drugs. But it's as, as simple as that. Would that, would legalising drugs, and I don't know the answer to this, so I'm asking uh, you if you think this, or indeed if, if you are an addict, you might even be a drug dealer for all I know, if legalising drugs, would that put the drug dealers out of business? Or would they find another way around it? Thanks, John. Andrew. Morning, Ali. Good morning to you. Your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are, where's John getting all the money to open up all these clinics and buy the heroin and stuff, you know? I think you might as well say to young people all over the country then, go and be a drug addict, we'll sort you out here free of charge. Where do you stop? Alcoholics, do you then have drop-in centres to serve up cheap cider? You know, the bottom line is, Ali, that (laughs) there's been a successful Pentecostal church programme up here, although it's small numbers, where they take the kids away from the area entirely. They go down to Wales or England, and that's been successful in getting them off of drugs, but they never come back here, Ali. And I suggest, unless, you know, you could take everybody away from their grim surroundings in Dundee or Glasgow or wherever the, the biggest problems are in Scotland, or indeed further south, then, you know, the, the cost involved in, in trying to get folk off of the opiate alley is, is huge. And it's very, very, it's, there's no guaranteed success rate because the power of the opiate forces many when they're trying to come off to commit suicide, Ali, as we've seen with some of the tragic cases. And I'm afraid, Ali, the, the methadone is probably the best, albeit extremely expensive, solution we've got right now mm-hmm. in trying to use community nursing. It is a social problem. I don't agree it's a health problem because it's a, a choice people make early to go on drugs or to become alcoholics. They become addicted through themselves. Okay, we could argue till, you know, midnight about the causes of why folk take drugs. They're not all poor, Ali. You know, I think there's no doubt about it. A lot of them are rather stupid people, in my opinion. A lot of the addicts I've seen and, you know, uh, why else would you want to try opiates, Ali? Well, I, I don't know that they're, they're, I could label them as, as stupid people. Um, it's it's how they get into it. And, some and, of them are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And some of them are, are, are thieves and burglars and would-be thieves and burglars and whatever, uh, committing crime whether we're on drugs or not. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's... It's, uh, the other human side of that tragedy is there's an ongoing court case, Ali, up here just now where a guy who was high in morphine went over into the opposite carriageway and killed somebody with a head-on crash. So 
that's the other side of the coin we've got to sort of deal with as well. You can't have people running around using such powerful opiates. Mm. Okay, got to stop you there. Got the news at the top of the hour. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. Keep your calls coming in uh, regarding uh, drugs across Scotland. Uh, Also in the next hour, have you or someone in your family ever been a victim of serious crime? Uh, We'll be talking about that. The Scottish Government announcing it's putting... And Andrew's saying, where do you get money for uh, drugs? Well, the Scottish Government have found £14 million to put into Victim Support Scotland. We'll be talking about that. And also we'll be talking about uh, the death of a baby from Dumfries and that has led to new warnings about symptoms of meningitis. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin. We've been talking in the last hour about drugs and the amount of deaths that uh, are happening across Scotland. Still a few comments to come to, and you've still plenty of time to comment on that as well. But I, I want to turn to a new warning because the death of a baby from Dumfries has led to new warnings about the symptoms of meningitis. It's a disease that strikes fear in the heart of parents because it can appear so suddenly and have such a devastating impact. And the rash we all associate with the virus may not be the first sign that something is wrong. Eight-month-old Koa Brock died a few days after he'd been rushed to hospital. And his parents have since revealed his organs were donated to save other sick children. Koa's father, Barry Brock, has been speaking exclusively to our reporter, Kerry-Ann Doherty, for Scotland's Talking. And he began by telling her how they'd returned from a family weekend away at a caravan with absolutely no idea how ill Koa was. He was drinking. He was still taking milk and water and, you know, he's still filling his nappies. So, you know, it was just the whole... Carl Paul, every four hours, you know, ibuprofen, whatever the medicines are. And then on the Monday, he, he had perked up a wee bit, but there was more life about him, but he was really mump, he was really grumpy, he was really sort of unsettled and that. But, you know, we just say, well, this, uh, well, you know, he's just, he's been ill, so he's just, this is him picking up over his illness. He was sick once during the day, but, you know, he's he's a baby, so... We just we, there was nothing we thought of it, and you know since we've been back to the doctors, you know we've asked is there anything, you know we done wrong or that you know, but the doctors just you know the doctor just said if you had what what you're telling us we would have just told you Calpol half seven in the morning, Haley's best friend Alison who's a child's nurse, she sent a message asking how he was, so Haley sent her a Snapchat. You know, so, so she could listen to the reason and that. And so Alison says, oh, you know, give the doctor a phone and that. You know, it could be bronchitis or, you know, like that. So she let the doctor hear and he says, get an ambulance. So Haley phoned me. I was at work. I was just round the corner. So, hey, you're going to have to come home. Co's getting an ambulance. I say, so rushed home. Never for a second did I think it was anything serious. Uh, I mean, there was he was breathing just, he was breathing at the normal rate. In the space of 10, 15 minutes, it really started deteriorating. And, you know, I started, you know, this ambulance, I started, you know, this ambulance needs to get here. Uh, so eventually a first responder came, you know, just in the car. And he seemed very, very worried, you know, he phoned the ambulance. Now the ambulance was coming from Annan. And he says, how long are you going to be? And they said, 15 minutes. And, you know, it was, this baby's not got 15 minutes. So it was get the blue lights on in the car. You know, they basically said at the hospital, you know, he's basically another, you know, seconds, a minute, you know, and he was... So we got him on the oxygen and that, and, uh, you know, they... He wasn't responding, you know, they do something, so it's like... Uh, it's basically... Try, well, I've no, I'm no good with words, you know, trying... Basically, the way it sounded like they were trying to hurt him to get a response out of him or to get him to cry... You know, and that's what they said, he's no responding. We're going to do a CT scan to check his brain. And I can't, I can't, and I went away to get something. And I, it just sort of dawned on me, I says, you know, his, he's not responding because his brain's not working. You know, that was my worry. But the CT scan came back and they, they never said it was fine. They said that he, they couldn't see nothing. They couldn't see nothing, so which was good. And then, you know, he went up to Glasgow 
you know, they'd got him stable, you know, he was breathing through the machine, what have you, but, you know, we just we thought it was, we had just got there on time, it was going to be okay, and then, you know, later later that day, just things took a turn from the worst, meningitis, it just attacked his brain, you know. When was that word mentioned, meningitis? Oh, I, I mean, the whole week was such... Like, such... Did, did they know straight away? No. No. They took him away to get another CT scan, and you know the CT scan came back, and you know it was just these, it was black. Uh, so, I mean, it was like I say. I mean, we were there the, uh, the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It was it's honestly just like one day, you know, because I, I think I slept two and four in the morning, so that was only two hours sleep I had in the week. We got pulled into the room, you know. We knew what was coming that they were telling us, you know, he's not going to. He's not going to make it, but you know, Haley, Haley's uh, got a heart condition, and she's very big on organs, organ donation. You know, so we said that you know we want to uh, give his organs away. You know, because like Haley said, if uh, she was, if she needed a heart, you know, it's, you know, your baby could go in. If your baby was not well and needed an organ, would you take it? Of course you would. So why don't? Why is there only fifty people a year give it? Was that like um, like a no-brainer for Haley? Just oh, absolutely, and not just not just a no-brainer to the point that's you know we're still pushing for. I mean, on Sunday, just on Sunday night there, we we're putting our appeals on Facebook. We had we've had three hundred over three hundred folks sign up to become organ donors, and a lot of which is kids. You know, which is we we always said you know about co coas if they they could have took something in coa to save not just save a baby's life, it would be not just that, to stop another set of parents going through what we've went through. Barry Brock speaking there to Kerry Ann Doherty for Scotland's Token. Joining us now is Gillian Marshall from Meningitis. Now, Gillian, a very good morning to you. Hello, dear. Hello. Um, Meningitis now, what is the aim of your association then? Meningitis now is a charity that is here to help those that are affected by meningitis. Um, one of the biggest aims is to try and ensure that no more deaths are caused by meningitis and by doing that, raise awareness of the awful disease. Right, it is a disease that, as you say, is just can creep up on you and, and leave uh, parents really just wondering what they did wrong. Yes, it is. It's, um, it's because the disease itself comes about so quickly and when people have the symptoms of the disease, it could just be uh, uh, the same symptoms as a common wee bug, uh, feeling unwell, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And should parents hesitate if they think? They should really just act quickly, don't they? I think the biggest thing is to trust your own instincts and seek medical advice straight away. Um, my own daughter, at 13 days old, um, just seemed unusual. She made a wee whimper noise, had no symptoms at all of meningitis, and I just felt something was wrong. And I took her up to AME, and within a couple of hours, she was on a life support machine. Um, again, I often worry that people focus so much on the rash, septicemia rash, but not all the symptoms are ever um, visible. Mm-hmm. So, again, when she took on well, she showed no symptoms, but he had bacterial meningitis. It was a mum's intuition for you then, was it? So, so a lot of people have told me. I'm very lucky. She's now a happy, healthy four-year-old. But, yes, if I hadn't, she would have passed away in the house if I hadn't just went on my instincts. Good grief. How did the hospital react then when you got her there? Um, when she first arrived, um, it was obviously that sense of unknowing by the doctors. I took her to Inverclyde Royal, and um, the, the team were amazing. They were around her, as you can imagine, a teeny baby at 13 days old. Um, and that's where I got told that it was suspected meningitis. And at the time, they told me they were going to drill into her legs and put what they called the equivalent of the mistress into her. Mm-hmm. to basically kill all bugs, um, which they did. I held her as they drilled into her legs. Um, but like you say, that quickness, that just acting on my instincts is 
what I essentially did save her life because, like you say, it comes about so quickly. It comes about so quickly. You reacted so quickly, as did the emergency teams in the hospital. Uh, and from what you're saying, it could have changed again so quickly. Yes, yes. I mean, when when a wee baby, a toddler or a young child becomes unwell with meningitis, you know, you could be looking at symptoms such as um, could be sick, a fever, um, vomiting, muscle pain. Um, but in a wee baby, some of them are hard to mm. tell. Um, often babies are sick. Often they can be out of character, teething, etc. But but if if you feel these symptoms are persisting or just maybe worse than normal or just not right, that is when you should seek medical advice. And there is nothing wrong with asking for help. That's why doctors are there. Absolutely, yes, indeed. Well, Gillian, the advice there is is through your own personal experience. Um, what does meningitis do? What does meningitis now do to help parents who have gone through this? The thing about meningitis is that the outcomes can be so varied um, from person to person, but meningitis are there to whether it might be a whole family needs to learn sign language because their child now might be deaf, or support because a house might need to be um, equipped to, for a child that might now be in a wheelchair, or an adult, I'm saying child, but an adult as well. So meningitis can be there to support. It can be there to support as well um, in the bereavement of, of somebody, a loved one, and they can offer counselling to help with the situation. Right. Gillian, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning from Meningitis Now. And uh, thanks for your thoughts there. Thank you. Thank you. And if you would like to get in touch with Meningitis Now, you can do that on the number 0808 801038 or on the website, org, and you get more information on there. And also thanks to uh, Barry Brock for coming and telling us the story about Koa. And uh, as he said, you know, think about transplants. They didn't need to think very long. They knew what they were going to do. But um, if if it was to happen, something was to happen to you or indeed a member of your family, as, as Barry says, why are there so few people coming forward with uh, offering their 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 organs but if it's something you should uh, you want to consider you'll find more details on the uh, organ transplant and uh, the website it's coming up to 20 past 11 now uh, still lots of um, comments about uh, drugs we also want to talk about victims of crime and we'll do that after these Scotland's Talking the podcast have you or someone in your family ever been a victim of a serious crime? And did you feel that you got the help and support you needed or were you left to cope on your own? On Thursday, the Scottish Government announced it's putting £14 million into Victim Support Scotland. More than a million pounds of that will be invested in the homicide service, which will see a dedicated caseworker given to every family who've lost a loved one through murder or violent crime. Our political correspondent, Alan Smith, heard about it from Justice Secretary Michael Matheson. What I've been very clear about is that we need to make sure that these are services which are informed by the voices of victims and to make sure that they're shaped by their experience. And that's exactly what this new service will do as a result of the funding which we're providing to Victim Support Scotland. Overall, this funding package is worth nearly £14 million over the next three years. That's a significant bit of money. This is a significant increase in the level of funding which we're providing to victim services in Scotland. And it's reflective of our priority to make sure that the needs of victims are at the very heart of how our justice system operates, to make sure that it's informed by their needs and that it's addressing their needs and providing the support and assistance that they require. And this additional funding will allow them to expand the range of services they can provide and improve the way in which they deliver them as well so they are much more victim-centred alongside providing this new specialist service for victims and families that experience homicide in Scotland. Kate Wallace from Victim Support Scotland explained to Alan how it will help. The service will provide a dedicated caseworker for every single family in Scotland who's been bereaved by murder, um, if that's what they wish. 
The caseworker will work alongside the family um, for as long as they need, as often as they need, um, and will link them into other specialist support um, services that they may need, for example, counselling and things like that. Um, and will also help inform other organisations of what's happened so that families don't have to repeat their story over and over again. So, you know, for example, there's a number of people that you need to notify um, when someone dies. But if you can imagine, a family are often not in a position to be able to have those conversations. Um, it's such a devastating um, thing that's happened. So the caseworker will be able to take that um, and help them with that um, and do some of that um, information sharing and negotiation on their behalf. What is the impact then on the, the, the family of a victim then if they have to to keep reliving this and keep having to tell the story over and over again? Well, often families tell us that they, they, they haven't to tell this over and over again. Um, is like reliving um, the event. It's very traumatic um, and re-traumatising every time they have to explain. Um, very often families are not in a position um, to be able to um, think about the criminal justice system, what might happen, um, you know, need help to take information in and a caseworker will be able to work very much from their perspective, get an understanding of the family and what their needs are um, and help them understand and navigate their way through the criminal justice system. Is this well. dedicated service long overdue? A number of organisations have been asking for it for um, quite a while now. There are a couple of countries who have already got it. England and Wales have already got a dedicated service as do the Netherlands. So let's hear more about what it's like to be in that situation. Someone who's been pressing for these changes is Bea Jones. Uh, she's the mother of Moira Jones, who was murdered in Glasgow almost 10 years ago. Slovakian Marek Herser is serving at least 25 years in prison for attacking her and killing her in Queen's Park on the city's south side. After her daughter's death, Bea set up the Moira Fund to help other families going through the same experience. She told us something like this is long overdue in Scotland. I think we, to start with, we were totally traumatised. We were behaving like robots. You couldn't take it in. It was, you couldn't believe it. It was how, why, my Moira, how could... And what happened, because no-one knew for, for a long time how it had come about. Um, I can just say it, it's, it's despair, it's... We were, we were told by an excellent family liaison officer that we could hit a wall soon. And I asked her to explain that to me. And she said, you're shell-shocked at the moment, but soon you'll begin to feel a range of different emotions. Pain, grief, anger, guilt... And she named all sorts of emotions and she told my husband and myself that it was quite likely that we would be experiencing different emotions at the same time and that that would make it more difficult for us to cope. In fact, even to understand each other. And these words were the best ones ever said because we've remembered them lots of times because she was absolutely right. There were times we couldn't talk each other or touch each other. Um... I get, if, my, if our son hadn't come back from Australia to look after us, he was explaining one of us to the other. He was trying. I reckon that he had a lot to do with us being together. That sounds very dramatic, but the statistics for people getting through this together are not good. It's got to make the victims' families feel as if they're being better looked after, and it's very important how people are made to feel. Um, I mean, sometimes... Families are, what's the word, dysfunctional to start with. And that's, they're certainly not going to be any less so if they're left and they're not given help. Whereas if they're given that help, there's a hope that sometime, I don't know what normal is, there's a normal perhaps for people who are bereaved, violent through violence. But hopefully it will ease their journey just a little bit. They won't have the pain of having to explain all the time. And sometimes you're so weary, you're so exhausted. But it's not like making a normal phone call. It's so very, very hard. You're very vulnerable. But having the support of someone who knows what they're doing and knows what it's like and can make these phone calls for you, can sort out with the headmaster at school, perhaps counselling for the children, 
that can get the doctor to visit or get someone to visit rather than you have to make the effort to go. So many ways it can help. Bea Jones, a mother of Moira Jones, who was murdered um, 10 years ago in Glasgow. So have you or someone in your family been a victim of a serious crime? And and do you think this money will go a long way? Do you agree with Bea or do you think, you know, £14 million is, is too much to be going into this this particular cause? What what are your thoughts? Uh, if you have been affected by a serious crime, then, then do give us a call. Let us know. 033 2020 is the phone number. O Treble 3 2020 401. Just going back to a couple of other things that we've been uh, talking about before we go back on the phones. Um, and, you know, we, we, we've got uh, a few comments coming in regarding uh, the drug situation that we're talking about. And just in case you missed it, we're talking about what we are doing currently to, to um, combat the drug deaths. Um, and various comments coming in today. Got one in here from Catherine, Catherine Hughes. Catherine, apologies because, I, I, you know, you've, you've um, spent the time writing a, a very long email and unfortunately I don't have the time on the programme to... Um, to read it all out, but you do say a more holistic approach is needed. We need to increase awareness of dangers of drugs and start prevention from school age onwards. Uh, I, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, looking at the life opportunities that people have and why people turn to drugs in the first place and ensuring that there are more local community interventions and activities that give people other distractions that offer them activities that stop them getting hooked in the first place. And the government and health board should certainly not be condoning this activity by opening fixed rooms to allow addicts to take drugs, which is totally against that, but thinks the, the blame should be down to the government ministers as well. Uh, they should uh, stand up and, um, you know, that they are ministers, government ministers need to be more responsible as they get paid more than enough and should be coming on the show to take your calls or take our calls on the subject. Okay, thank you very much indeed. For that. We're also talking uh, meningitis today and Margaret Bruce wants to talk about that. So Margaret, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Your thoughts here on this then? Well, it was just to let people know, uh, my son had meningitis when he was a year and a half old and he didn't have a rash. He, it started off with a sore throat and a runny nose, which you would think was just a cold. Mm-hmm. Um and then, straight from that, he had a runny nose and a sore throat in the morning, and by evening time, he was complaining that the light was hurting his eyes. He went off his legs, he couldn't walk. Um, I phoned the doctor. Due to the speed of the doctor and the reactions of the doctor, he got an ambulance right away, and he was taken in, and he was diagnosed with viral meningitis. Now, that came from... Um, a rel- a, well, one of my sister's-in-laws, um, an elderly gentleman, he was ill, and my sister, through attending, going to that house, and then coming back to us, and that's how he picked it up. Mm-hmm. Luckily, luckily, he survived. He was left deaf in one year. It's a small price to pay. He's Absolutely, got his life. Yeah, he'll be, yeah, he'll yeah. be 46 this year. Um, at the same time, there was a wee girl, she was seven years old. She went into hospital the same time as him, uh, with the same kind of a viral meningitis as well. And unfortunately, she came out in a wheelchair in a vegetative state. So I think that we were very, very lucky. lucky. Yeah, very absolutely. Lucky. But I mean, there's not always a rash, and it's, it, it's, it's nearly clear at the time that they've got meningitis, because that was the furthest thing from my mind. Mm. I just thought that he had a cold. But uh, again, that message coming over, Margaret, as we heard in a report earlier, is just as you've said, it's not always a rash, so no. don't, don't put it off. Get some, some attention fairly quickly. Oh, definitely. The quicker, the better, because, I mean, I, I think that was down to that, and, I mean, I'll forever be grateful to, to that doctor uh, because, I mean, it was the, the speed that he reacted uh, which which got him through. Otherwise, the outcome could have been a lot worse. Margaret, thank you very much indeed. Agnes, good morning to you. Morning, Alan. Morning. Your point, please. And my point is about the drug situation. OK. 
the people think that this is a new thing. This has been going on for decades upon decades. Right. And why, why have we allowed it to go on, then? Could you go and switch your radio off, Agnes, please? Because that's, that's, that's causing problems and, you know, it's... it's not better. That's better for you as well. Right, OK, so why has it been allowed to go on for decades and decades? Because people keep their head in the sand and don't want to see what's going on around about them. Right. Is it something that's ever affected you and your family? Yeah, it has. In what way? We lost a loved one just a couple of years ago. Uh, 47... And this was through drugs, was it? Well, it was classified as a heart attack. Right, right. The people need to open their eyes and see what's going on around about them. There's drug addicts in their 60s still going to chemists to get messed on. I don't agree with the person that said legalise drugs. That would just make them take more. Mm. It's interesting, Agnes, that we've had quite a few uh, comments coming through uh, on Twitter and various social medias, just watching them saying, you know, that, and it's just one line, it's just saying, legalise and decriminalise drugs. But you disagree with that? <coughs> well, they were also talking about safe rooms mm -hmm. for people to go and inject themselves safely. Now, if somebody tells somebody there's a syringe, it's safe to do that, and that person dies, does the person that was told them to do it transfer manslaughter, mm. assisted suicide? So who is responsible? Exactly. Exactly. Agnes, thank you very much indeed. Uh, still more calls to come, uh, of course, and we also have... Coming up next on Scotland's Talkin', any other business. Any other business. Anything else you want to talk about, something that's been getting up your nose this week that you want to talk about, get off your chest, then do it now. 033-2020-401. 033-2020-401. For instance, Scotland's tally of 41 Commonwealth Games medals. It cost £26 million to get these 41 Commonwealth Games medals. Do you think it was money well spent? Or should that money have been used elsewhere? £26 million. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Last five minutes or so of Scotland's talking. Let's go to Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Good morning to you. Good morning. Your point today, then? Well, really, it was under any other business. Any <laughs> other business, right. What have we got that I have no idea what you're going to talk about, well, so go for it. It's really about the NHS endowment scandal. This is something that hasn't come out yet, but um, back um, when they um, built the new... Um, what was the new homeopathic hospital, the NHS Centre for Integrative Care. It was built with £2.78 million worth of public money. Yet they went and shut the ward in the hospital without consulting really properly the public um, that, 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 they were that they were going to do that. And when they actually sold the old hospital um, in Great Western Road, it was sold for £650,000 and it was not returned to the endowment fund. The health board put that towards their deficit. And that's included in their um, papers at the time. So how can people confidently give money to, um, a, you know, a, a, you know the, the, the charity when that's what, when when we don't know that they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're going to honour people's um, wishes really? And I'm really concerned that um, it's the actual um, the health board people are actually in charge of this endowment fund and it's too easy for them to want to use that money to spend towards other things. Right. They, they actually still have £1.4 million belonging to us. Now, I really think to, to, to have proper um, faith in what they're doing, they, they really need to ha take um, this out of the control of the health board, board members and put it into an, an independent uh, board who you know who will oversee 
these monies to make sure that they're spent appropriately and that the, you know, the actual donors' wishes are properly respected. When you say that they've still got how much? One point. Still, they still have one point four million pound below. In... They've, got eight, they've got over eighty-six million in total. Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board belonging to all sorts of endowment funds, right? But belonging specifically to our endowment fund. Um, because there was supposed to be plans to build a phase two of the hospital. So a lot of money had been raised actually way back from the 1930s um, for, for, for to build this hospital. And it was the first hospital that was built with public, public money. Um, and, you know, in a kind of, um, in a, you know, a, jo a joint agreement with the hospital. And, and we actually came across papers, which was very strange, that actually said, even though we raised all that money up front and that they had the money to pay for it, they were actually leasing it back to us for £205,000 a year. Right, so also going back to where this all started in Tayside, where, uh -huh. where it was found. That's right. I mean, the new chief executive and the new chairman have pledged that the money that was taken from the endowment fund will be put back in there. Uh -huh. But you think it's far too easy for um, health boards who are sitting, scrambling around for cash, uh, to look at this sitting, wherever it be, may be, Greater Glasgow, whether it be yeah. anywhere, um, to look at this pot sitting there that's, you know, that it's not being used properly then. It's a well, misuse of funds, really, isn't it? it? It's really a concern. And how can people confidently give? You know, they need to have it. It needs to definitely be under a separate committee that does not have any board members that, 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 that can sway where the money's going. It's, they never repaid that £650,000 when they sold the old hospital back to us. Um, and yet uh, we protested at the time. And it's actually quoted in their board papers about the protest, and I've brought it up with um, subsequent chair chairmen that have came to the board, and also I've brought it up with Shona Robinson herself when we met her, uh, you know, um, last year. And what was her reaction? Well, we, 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 we were bringing up about the fact that they were trying to shut down, shut, shut down the hospital, mm -hmm. um, the, the inpatient unit. Um, and, um, well, what happened was she just came into the room and said she wasn't going to overturn their decision before she even listened to what we were going to say to her. We got dragged all the way to Edinburgh the day before the decision was to be made. Catherine, thank you. I'm going to stop you there because we have run out of time, but thank you very much indeed for raising that in, under any other business. I think it's interesting that I have another one on uh, the health service here under any other business as well from Alex who just texts, well it's an email I think, uh, health service in Scotland is underfunded we must recognise this uh, you had on your news yesterday a doctor from the BMA talking about uh, how far behind we are with other European countries in the money that we're putting in. Uh, we must accept that we are, are underfunded. Uh, it wouldn't matter who the health secretary is or the health minister, we would still be underfunded. But that £26 million that was spent on getting 41 Commonwealth Games medals maybe could have been put to better use in the current climate. Thank you very much indeed, Alex. Uh, Saul's been watching Twitter. Wind up very quickly. Very quickly, Quick summary, substances should be legalised and decriminalised. People are calling for that, but then that would affect the industry that has been set up when it comes to methadone and chemists. People would be out of jobs. And substances should be tested and the drug users should still be allowed to use them, but then there's calls for where would the funding for that come when testing the drugs. It's all down to money, isn't it? It's all down to money. Thank you very much indeed for your calls today and uh, your uh, texts, your emails, everything else that's coming as well. This has been Scotland's Talking. I'm Ali Bally. Thanks to Saul for taking the calls and we're back next Sunday from 10 through until midday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye-bye.